coming up on Unpolished MBA. It's really interesting to run a business where you can reach out to a couple hundred other people across the country or the world for that matter who are running the same exact business. That's a really unique opportunity because just think of the siloed effect of, you know, being able to call on those folks and say, you know, how did this work for you? What can I do? And you're able to avoid a bunch of pitfalls and hurdles that otherwise you would have been blindfolded to. This show is sponsored by TPM Focus, the strategy and execution consulting firm focused on generating revenue and finding product market fit for new innovations. Head over to tpmfocus.com to learn more. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Unpolished MBA podcast. And today I have Chris Wilson with me. Hi, Chris. How are you today? Hey, Monique. Thanks so much for having me. I'm great. How are you? I am well. I want to ask you the same two questions I ask everyone else. Are you an entrepreneur or a corporate employee? I am an entrepreneur. I used to be a corporate employee, did both for a little while, and now I'm on the strictly entrepreneur side. Oh, we got to talk about that. How about this? MBA or no MBA? Uh, no MBA. I, I have what I call an out-of-school MBA. Ooh, okay. Now that's that's a new one. Tell me what this out-of-school MBA is to you. So it sounds like it's entrepreneurship, but... Correct. Like I think that when you actually run a business, you learn some things that you can't really learn in school. So not knocking MBAs, but there's definitely some some stuff that you pick up outside of the classroom. I would say pretty much all of it. <laughs> Unless you're doing an MBA to be in a corporate consulting environment, most of them are not relevant to just being a small business entrepreneur or whatever, a tech startup entrepreneur. Agree. Well, tell me what your entrepreneurial journey has been and what you're working on now. Sure. So uh, my career started in tech and transitioned into tech sales, got laid off a couple of times and figured that I didn't like the way that felt and wanted to think about entrepreneurship as a second stream of income. And so I researched franchises and invested in my first franchise about five years ago. Since then, been laid off twice. So after the third and final time, I decided no more corporate for me. I was going to figure out this entrepreneurial life. So wait a minute, you were franchising and working corporate at the same time, you said? Correct. For how long? I did it for about two years. Wow. And so how did you manage your time? Were you working like 20 hours a day or or how did that go? Yeah, I would wake up in the morning early, partly because I was kind of scared of this project that I undertook. And so I used that time to get some work done before I had to be in the office. And then after being in the office, I'd come home and do some more work on my new project. So it was not as glamorous as some of the Instagram posts make it seem. There was actually some work involved. (laughs) None of this entrepreneurship thing is. I say it's a calling. It's certainly not for everyone. Do you mind sharing what that franchise was? Sure. So it was a Club Pilates, which is a boutique uh, fitness studio in the Orlando area. So I built out one of those and it went really well and ended up investing in another location. So I had two locations. Wow, that's really smart. I love Pilates, but it is expensive. So that, that seems like, especially in the Orlando area, a really smart way to get started. What were some of the things you really learned from that experience that you didn't know before, though? 
just managing a team and the type of team, right? So coming from corporate full-time is normally 40 to 60 hours. I learned quickly that Pilates instructors don't work those amount of hours. <laughs> <laughs> and so you have to be creative with, you know, where you were hiring, how you were hiring and keeping good folks around. So I think that that's something that I learned pretty readily. You know, also had to run a business during COVID, obviously, as a, a lot of your listeners, I'm sure have. So there were some challenges there. Every day is a new journey and a new opportunity to learn. And so that's where it ends up. There's no getting around that. You know, with COVID, I mean, that was something that, I mean, pretty much anyone who had a business where someone had to touch another person, it was just like, so what do I do? And in a Pilates studio, for example, the equipment, you know, people's bodies, you know, have to lay on them and sanitizing and people just didn't feel comfortable, you know, for a while. Sure. Being new to the industry, did you have someone who was already experienced with running a Pilates studio or someone to help guide you? Because I would have been completely lost. (laughs) Well, luckily, that's one of the benefits of franchising is that if you pick a good franchise, they figured out a lot of those operational duties for you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they're able to pass on some, you know, information that you can take and, you know, do what makes sense for you and your location. And then I did have some staff that had worked in fitness before and, you know, together with the guidance of the franchise company, we're able to sit down and figure it out. Ah, interesting. So I mentioned how Pilates studios are expensive. I don't know how much it costs you to to open one or to run one, but I could tell you as far as joining one, like I already am a member of a gym and they told me to take Pilates once a week. It will cost me an additional $120 a month. Mind you, I already pay $214 a month for gym membership. So is that normal pricing for a Pilates studio? It depends on where you are and it depends on the type of Pilates and, you know, the type of program that you're looking for. We had a pretty unique offering that was a little bit less than that. So maybe I can send you a referral to your area. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) What made you choose that franchise? Because we're going to talk about other things when it comes to selecting a franchise. But what made you choose that one? Yeah, for me, I was looking for a business that allowed me to keep my corporate job because that was the plan at the time. So there were a limited number of those. I checked a lot of the boxes. It was in my uh, investment wheelhouse. It's, it's important to stay inside that wheelhouse when uh, making an investment. Um, and then it was, uh, I think, provided a, a nice benefit to society. I didn't necessarily want to get into a business where you know, the product or service that I was offering wasn't something that I would be proud of. And so health, I think, is wealth. And so it checked that box nicely. And then lastly, just from a financial standpoint, when you looked and did the research on, you know, the investment and then the return on that investment, it started to make sense. And hopefully, or my plan was to kind of build a couple of them and be able to, to leave corporate. And so it worked out well. Yeah, well, it sure did. Did you have to do the research on finding that opportunity on your own? And were you already experiencing that? If so? Right. So I have a mentor who is a franchise consultant. And so he sits down with folks and and figures out what they're looking for and comes back with essentially a short list that checks all of the boxes for them. And then he helps you walk you through the process of, you know, vetting to make sure the opportunity is definitely for you, finding you financing if you need it, and just putting you in touch with folks. And so it's actually what I do now. Oh, so you are a franchise consultant right now, as well as a franchisee. Correct. Okay. So, you know, you mentioned you had a mentor. So how does one even get started in the franchise world? Let's say you want to be a franchisee and you don't have a cool mentor like you had. How does one even get started on the process? 
A lot of it is, is you can do some research. I, I would suggest contacting me, a franchise consultant or someone that you trust in that area. But there's definitely research you can do online. There are franchise shows in most uh, big cities where you can go and find out a bunch of information for, you know, most of the entries are free. So those are great ways to start. I think a franchise consultant helps because they have most times experience in the industry can really remove some of the emotion involved in making a decision like this and can focus on the things that you say you're looking for and present those to you in a high efficient manner. Okay. So as far as like your work, for example, as a franchise consultant, are there specific industries that you specialize in? No. So all of my, I have about 500 different franchises in my portfolio. We can go from mold mitigation to roof repair, to fitness, to food and beverage, to insurance, to anything you can really think of. There are a couple of industries that are my favorite. I I love fitness. I love beauty and wellness. I love senior care and I love education. Those are just my favorites, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I would suggest one of my clients open up something there. Ah, very good. Okay. That's smart. You know, when choosing a business, you know, some people try to find things that they're interested in and all of that. But it sounds like in your case, you weren't the actual operator, right? You were the owner, but not you you didn't have to work in there, you know, seven days a week. So how much of that plays a part in the decision? Sure. So I think some of it depends on the investor. Some people need to be in a space where they feel like they have some industry expertise and and that will help drive them. Some people like myself say business is business. The numbers are numbers. If I can figure out the people portion of it, then the product or service really doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So it just really depends on what's driving you. I always try to find out the motivating factors, right? What's your why? And then once we do that, we can decide on if the business has to be something that's in your wheelhouse or if it's something that you can take a leap of faith with like I did with Pilates. We're going to take a quick time out and pick back up in just a moment. If you need marketing campaigns and landing pages done quickly so that you can test the market with your ideas and see who's interested and then stay in touch with those people, you need a tool that can automate all of that. You're an innovator and you're certainly busy. Perhaps you don't have a CMO or chief marketing officer right now, or you have no plans to hire one anytime soon. And you may be doing this type of work yourself or have a new career professional or even intern helping you. You need Entreport. You can build a landing page or website in minutes. You can accept payments. You can automate marketing campaigns and the list goes on and on. I have personally been using Entreport to build, automate and grow my business for going on seven years now. I don't recommend any tool that I haven't used and that I don't believe can help the unpolished MBA audience. Simply put, you can move and test your innovative ideas in the market faster with this tool. Don't get bogged down with too many complex tools. This is all you'll need. Go to tpmfocus.com forward slash entreport and that's spelled O-N-T-R-A-P-O-R-T. And that's O-N-T-R-A-P-O-R-T, tpmfocus.com forward slash entreport. Go there to start your free trial and get started. You know, 
some things that concern people, especially if they've never been an entrepreneur before, they can be risk adverse sometimes. I wouldn't say entrepreneurs, we're, we're necessarily risk takers. I, I don't think that's the case. We make calculated risks, right? Sure. Uh, we run numbers. But sometimes people are concerned like, hey, if I buy into this franchise and let's say I'm like, I don't want to do it anymore. How do I escape? <laughs> you know. So as far as, you know, I guess listing it for sale, like how would someone get out of that situation? Well, I think it's funny that you use the word escape, but I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Before you can buy a franchise, there's a big document called the franchise disclosure document. And you have to uh, this list, you know, the price of the franchise, what the investment is, what your expectations are, what the franchise company will do as opposed to what you will do. And in there is also terms for getting out, you know, and getting out means you could either sell the business to another investor or back to the franchise. You can transfer it. You can absolve yourself of stuff. But, you know, obviously there's a bunch of legal things that go into that. And so at least the document outlines what the possibilities are at the time you'll have to decide which one is best for you. And every franchise is different though, right? Absolutely. They're all different. There are some standard rules. Like for example, most franchise agreements are 10 years, which is something that a lot of people don't know, but that doesn't mean that you have to stay in it for 10 years. I'm a great example of that because the two Pilates studios I owned, I ended up selling them in December of this year. So okay, it was five years and not 10 for me. Okay. Okay. All right. So, I mean, that brings some folks hope who don't like long-term commitments per se. They know that there's options before those 10 years are up. Correct. It's interesting that, you know, I've met several franchisees and franchise consultants that were mostly in the restaurant space. And so I know a guy, he owned eight Burger Kings and I know a family too that has a few subways, but they actually work in the subway. And it's, it's, you know, it's hard work. And like for each location, they make about maybe 40,000. It's just like, for me, I would say, I, I just go get a job. Like, I, I don't know if I could do that. You know, some that are like, okay, this is one that's really kind of overlooked that most people don't consider. It may not be a sexy franchise, but this one is, is one that maybe folks should consider that they really don't. So I think a lot of people, their entry into franchising is normally in the food and beverage space. Um, that's just, you know, McDonald's is probably the world's most recognized brand, right? Mm -hmm. But there are other business opportunities that allow you to not necessarily work in them, which was attractive for me. We call those semi-absentee, which means on average, you'll work up to 20 hours a week on the business, right? So it's not full-time work. That also means that you have to hire some staff. And so the investment level is a little higher, but there are quite a few of these semi-absentee models that start to make sense for people who are either considering staying with their job and just adding that additional stream of income or eventually want to come up with a plan for leaving corporate altogether. Okay. So tell me some of the things that people need to think about and consider when they're trying to decide whether to invest or buy a franchise? So investment level is huge. I really ask people, what do you want your day-to-day -day life to be like, right? I mean, and we all would like to just be sitting on a beach, sipping a cocktail, but um, <laughs> you have to do something to, to bring in some income, right? So what does that look like for you? I tell people, if you'd like to pick up your children every day at three o'clock, there are business opportunities that will allow you to do that, right? So let's focus on those. Ultimately, I ask my clients to come up with a list of what I call non-negotiables. 
these are things that just won't work for you. And so, so for example, if it's picking up your daughter at three or you never want to work nights and weekends because you did that enough or being able to take an extended vacation whenever you feel like it, you know, come up with that list and let's find businesses that check those boxes. Are there a lot that check those kind of restrictive boxes? No, not a lot, but there, there are some possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how did I know you were going to say that? Um, <laughs> you don't want me lying on your podcast, do you? <laughs> no, I, I definitely want you to be honest with the people. But just to know the real deal, because when we were, I, I was green to, at that time to the business world. I was heavily in my engineering career. And so when we met this family that owned these multiple subways, and they used to donate napkins and stuff to the private school my kids went to. We thought, hey, they must be really doing big things. Right. And then we're like, oh, wait. You know, as they's like, no, 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 this is this and this is that. I was shocked. And so I'm always wondering which ones are the ones that are most lucrative, even if you have to be a part of the day to day business. And that's a question that comes up even in my world, because there's a lot of entrepreneurship through acquisition, but I would also say entrepreneurship through franchising. So let me let me break it down this way. Right. You could have and I'll use this example because you started like Subway. Right. Mm -hmm. One person could make forty thousand dollars and the other one could make two million. Right. So we have to look at what's reasonable, what's like possible. Right. Yeah. So no franchise is going to guarantee you a certain return on that investment, because if you don't make it, then you're going to sue them. Right. Like, so no one's going to tell you <laughs> what that is, but there are ways. And, and as we're you know researching these concepts, there are ways to find out, you know, let's find out what the average is. What's the mean yeah. and decide if we want to be above average or below average. Right. How much work does it take to go from being a middle performer to being a top performer? And so when you start looking at it from that perspective, you can look at some of the numbers and like you said, make a business decision a calculated risk, if you will. Yeah. You know, when someone is trying to get involved in this, I mean, financing, getting financing is a big part of what they'll need to do. What are the types of financing available for these types of business ventures? So I have quite a few franchise or financing partners that only deal with franchise lending. So these are not traditional banks like, you know, the bank that you probably bank with for your personal finance, but these are people who lend only to people who are operating in the franchise space. And the reason for that is that with franchising, again, you can look at that network and see what people are doing. You can see who's paying their bills and who's not. And the bank wants to remove risk just like we do. And so the bank understands if they pick a good franchise company who's going to support the franchisees, their chances of the bank getting paid back their loan increases a little bit, right? So certainly some space, there's some SBA lenders, there's some non-SBA lenders, but there are quite a few lenders who will you know, take a chance on folks if they're investing in a franchise. Yeah. Is there any, as I would say in my world, seller of financing, <laughs> you know, as far as like the franchisers, you know, offering some type of financing? I always say if you give people a way to pay for something, they're more likely to buy. Yeah. No. So there are a few franchises that will, you know, have an, a lending arm associated with the business. Um, most of them will outsource it and have partners that will do it. But yeah, they will absolutely help you get some financing because if you can get some financing, you can close the deal and that's exactly what they want. And you know, you mentioned seller financing. So for example, if you're buying a business that already exists, sometimes the seller will finance part of the deal for you or sometimes even all of the deal. And so you don't even actually have to go to a bank or one of these financial institutions. Ah, 
Pretty cool. So let me ask you, with your Pilates studios, for example, were those already existing businesses or did you have to, you know, start them from scratch? Yep. Started those from the ground up from scratch. Yikes. So wait, how did, oh, well, you had a great mentor. So see, that doesn't count for, for the audience out there. That's why it's important to know the right people. I, I'm sorry. Like you can read books all day and get MBAs and all that, but it does not equate to the relationships that really help you take it to the next level. I mean, you've never opened a Pilates studio before. So how in the world did you pull that one off while working full time? A lot of research. You know, I leaned a lot on the franchise company and they understand that this is a new opportunity. And so they know that the support that they have to dish out in the beginning will be significantly more than. So, for example, when I went to open my second location, I had done it before. Right. So I called them a lot less than I did the first time. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, they're not in town there with you. Like they can't run over and meet the guy to, you know, do the electric wiring because you're at work. You know what I'm saying? Right. But surprisingly, that's not where I needed a lot of help. Right. Like that's that was time management. And, you know, eventually I hired some staff that could take some of that burden off of me. But I really needed to understand how to operate and how to run the business, right? Like, what's the pricing? How do I handle customer acquisition? Oh, that's my kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. And those are the things that the franchise was able to help with. They were able to give me a run book to say, hey, listen, we have at the time 130 locations across the country. Here's what works well. Do this. Right. And set up weekly calls and make sure that you're hitting targets and things like that. And that was, you know, the benefit. That's why you pay royalties, right? People, we don't want to pay royalties, but if you're getting something for it, then it becomes beneficial. Absolutely. Yeah. The royalties is what people complain about only with bad franchise opportunities. A great point. I tell people all the time, if you pick the right company, you can't pay them enough. But if you pick the wrong company, any penny that you pay them is too much. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You're just paying them for to, to carry the brand name. Exactly. Right. Wow. So you know what? That's that's a good point you brought up is about basically what are these royalty fees paying for? Well, I don't I don't want you to share all that information right now. For the audience, you all will need to email us at unpolishedmba.com. And I'm going to have Chris share more about what actually those royalties actually go to and how it can be helpful to you. It's not just money going out. So I'm just tell you, you know, I spend most of my time in the tech startup world, but the way you describe these franchise opportunities, I think some of the tech startup people may reconsider the route they're going and consider this. I mean, it's, it's you, you're kind of given so much more support in a roadmap, per se, from a, a large peer network, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really interesting to run a business where you can reach out to a couple hundred other people across the country or the world, for that matter, who are running the same exact business. That's a really unique opportunity because just think of the siloed effect of you know being able to call on those folks and say, you know, how did this work for you? What can I do? And you're able to avoid a bunch of pitfalls and hurdles that otherwise you would have been blindfolded to. Right. And so that's one of the other things, too, I want to ask you is what is like one of the most surprising things that people don't know about owning a franchise? And we're going to talk about that in just a moment because we're going to wrap up here. And for our audience, they can email us if they want to hear those answers to those two questions um, that we just talked about. But I know that you got something juicy for us there because... People aren't really that privy to information about franchising unless, you know, you have someone close to you that's involved. So it'll be very interesting to know what's the part about it that, you know, most people are surprised by when they get into it. Mm -hmm. Well, Chris, I want to ask you one last question before we log off here. 
something that's often overlooked, but is an absolute must when buying a franchise? You know, a lot of times we get caught up with the product or service. I want to know what the day-to-day operations are going to be. How much work do I have to do for this to be profitable, right? I mean, we love, let's say, Chick-fil-A, right? And people say, oh, I went there for lunch and line was around, you know, and they got to me so fast and the food is always great. But that doesn't mean that that's the right business opportunity for you, right? So I always want to talk about the operations and what goes into that. And that's the stuff that you really can't tell just by being a consumer of the product. Oh, wow. That's good. That's really good. Well, Chris, I want to thank you for joining us today on Unpolished MBA and sharing your knowledge with our audience. Where can they find you and reach out to you if they are interested in learning more? Sure. So my website, www.legacyf, as in franchise, v as in ventures.com. Franchise Ventures. That's, is that the name of your company? It is. Ah, all right. Well, thank you, Chris. Thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you so much, Monique. The pleasure was mine. Thank you for listening to the Unpolished MBA podcast. To hear more episodes or to request to become a guest, please visit unpolishedmba.com.